Chapter 10. A Realistic Standard. Read by Peter Singer. Faced with an ethical argument that requires us to give away much of our income, we might ask whether there is any point to a standard that cuts so strongly against the grain of human nature that virtually no one follows it. Over many years of talking and writing about this subject, I found that for some people, striving for a high moral standard pushes them in the right direction, even if they do not reach that standard. The research by Shang and Croson referred to in Chapter 5, showing that the amount donated by callers to American public radio stations can be increased by telling them about large amounts given by others, points in this direction, but only within limits. Asking people to give more than almost anyone gives risks turning them off. It might cause some to question the point of striving to live an ethical life at all. Daunted by what it takes to do the right thing, they may ask themselves why they are bothering to try. To avoid that danger, we should advocate a level of giving that will lead to the greatest possible positive response. If we want to see those in poverty receive as much of the aid they need as possible, we should advocate the level of giving that will raise the largest possible total and so have the best consequences. Hence, in this chapter, I propose a much easier target. Roughly 5% of annual income for those who are financially comfortable, with less for those below that level, and significantly more for the very rich. My hope is that people will be convinced that they can and should give at these levels. I believe that doing so would be a first step toward restoring the ethical importance of giving as an essential component of a well-lived life. And if it is widely adopted, we'll have more than enough money to end extreme poverty. I concede that this standard falls far short of the moral argument I put forward earlier, for it remains true, of course, that most people could, after giving 5% of their income, give more without sacrificing anything nearly as important as the lives they would be saving. So how can I now say that people who give 5 are fulfilling their obligations when they are still far from doing what my argument concludes they ought to be doing. The reason lies in the difference between what I ought to do as an individual and what set of principles or moral code I should advocate in my writing and public speaking. At first glance, we might think that there should not be a gap between what we believe we ought to do and what we advocate. That overlooks the fact that for moral rules to be widely accepted and acted upon, they have to be attuned to our evolved human nature, with all its quirky relics of our tribal past. One of these relics is, as we saw in Chapter 4, that we are much more likely to help people we know or can see as identifiable individuals than we are to help distant strangers we will never see or even be able to name. So if I advocate that everyone who is financially comfortable should, to help protect children against malaria, and other easily preventable diseases, give away so much that they are themselves on the cusp of poverty, few people will do as I urge, and not many people will be helped. When I am making my own decision about how much to give, however, I cannot appeal to my own human nature as a reason for not doing what I would otherwise judge that I ought to do. As the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre famously pointed out, When I ask myself what I ought to do, I am free. It would simply not be true for me to say 
I can't give most of my income to help strangers in Africa because I'm human. And humans are less concerned about distant, anonymous strangers than they are about people nearby whom they know. That may explain why I do not donate all my spare cash to the charities recommended by The Life You Can Save, but it doesn't justify not doing so, or even provide a reason against doing it. I would, to use one of the existentialists' favourite terms of condemnation, be lacking in authenticity if I were to appeal to human nature as a reason for not doing what I see to be right and what I would be able to do if I chose to do it. If this still sounds puzzling, it is in part because we are used to thinking of morality as black or white. You either do what is right and deserve to be praised, or you do what is wrong and deserve blame for failing to do what is right. But moral life is more nuanced than that. We use praise and blame to influence behaviour, and the appropriate standard is relative to what we can reasonably expect most people to do. Hence, praise and blame, at least when they are given publicly, should follow the standard that we publicly advocate. That is, the standard which can be expected to have the best consequences, rather than the higher standard that we might apply to our own conduct. We should praise people for doing significantly better than most people in their circumstances do, and blame them for doing significantly worse. If you have done more than your fair share, that must at least lessen the blame you deserve. If you have gone beyond the usual moral standards, we should praise you for doing so, rather than blame you for not doing even more. Judging the rich and famous This brings us back to the world's wealthiest people, many of whom have donated tremendous amounts of money to charity. How should we think about Bill and Melinda Gates, who've given away $50 billion, most of it to fight poverty, but remain among the world's richest people? The Gateses know what the ultimate standard is. It's prominent on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website. All lives have equal value. Bill Gates says that he got started in philanthropy when he read that half a million children die every year from rotavirus. He had never heard of rotavirus. It's the most common cause of severe diarrhoea in children. He asked himself, how could I never have heard of something that kills half a million children every year? He then learned that in low-income countries, millions of children die from diseases that have been eliminated, or virtually eliminated, in the United States. That shocked him, because he had assumed that if there were vaccines and treatments that could save lives, governments would be doing everything possible to get them to the people who need them. As Gates tells the story, he and Melinda couldn't escape the brutal conclusion that, in our world today, some lives are seen as worth saving, and others are not. They said to themselves, this can't be true. But they knew it was. And that led them to set up the foundation to endow it with an initial gift of $28.8 billion and, since 2008, to devote themselves to making it as effective as possible. The gift was, at the time, the largest philanthropic donation ever made, dwarfing the lifetime contributions of Carnegie or Rockefeller, even when adjusted for inflation. Since then, Warren Buffett has given about $31 billion, mostly to the Gates Foundation, and has pledged to give 99% of his wealth. 
Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett deserve to be commended for their generosity and for the way in which they've chosen to do the most good rather than to have the grandest buildings or institutions named after them. Yet it's still obvious that the Gateses, for all their generosity, don't live by the ideal of the equal value of all human life. Their 66,000 square foot high-tech lakeside house near Seattle has been estimated to be worth $127 million. Property taxes amount to nearly $1 million. Among Gates's possessions is the Codex Lester, the only handwritten book by Leonardo da Vinci still in private hands, for which Gates paid $30.8 billion in 1994. So should we praise the Gateses for exceeding, by a very long way, what most people, including most of the super-rich, give? Or should we blame them for living in luxury while others still die from preventable diseases? They could give more and very probably will. In the 10 years since the first edition of this book went to press, they've given an additional $21 billion and have been quoted as saying they intend to give away nearly all of their wealth in their lifetime. But even if they didn't, I think we should praise them for giving as much as they have and for setting an example for other billionaires. The same is true of Warren Buffett, who even after giving away 99% of his current $84 billion, would be left with $840 million. Buffett is still living in the relatively modest Omaha home he bought in 1956, so he may well end up giving away more than 99%. The Public Standard This brings us to the important question of what the public standard for giving should be. In Chapter 2, we saw that Judaism, Christianity and Islam all have rules for how much one should give. For Jews, it is the traditional tithe, or 10% of their income. The Roman Catholic natural law teachings about property, quoted in that chapter, set out the much more demanding standard of giving everything one has in superabundance to those unable to find enough to eat or to meet similarly basic needs. And in affluent societies, many people have a lot of superabundance. Protestants are more likely to accept the tithe, justifying that choice by the words of Jesus, as reported by the Gospel writers Matthew and Luke. Muslims are required to give each year one-fortieth of their wealth, not their income. Although the rate varies according to the type of assets one has, and it only cuts in above a minimum level, which is itself the subject of debate among Islamic scholars. The effective altruism movement has reignited this ancient discussion of how much we should give. Giving what we can, the pioneering effective altruism organisation, draws on the familiar tithe in its pledge, which reads, I recognise that I can use part of my income to do a significant amount of good. Since I can live well enough on a smaller income, I pledge that for the rest of my life or until the day I retire, I shall give at least 10% of what I earn to whichever organisations can most effectively use it to improve the lives of others now and in the years to come. I make this pledge freely, openly and sincerely. As we saw in Chapter 5, other pledges require varying commitments. The billionaires who take the giving pledge commit to giving away half of their wealth 
either during their lives or in their will. But that still leaves them, or their heirs, with at least $500 million, so it isn't all that demanding. The Founders' Pledge allows founders of startups to choose what percentage, starting at 2%, they will donate when they sell their company. So it isn't demanding either. One for the World, as its name suggests, asks its student members to pledge an undemanding 1% of their post-graduation income. And Pledge 1% similarly asks companies to devote 1% of their resources to charities. Several people have told me about a different way of determining how much they should give, which they seem to have reached independently. They match their own non-essential spending so that luxury items cost them twice the sticker price. For some, it's a way of curbing their own extravagant tendencies. And for others, it makes their extravagance defensible. It also has the advantage of being easy on those with low incomes who will have little to spare for luxuries anyway. Nor does this idea demand a lot from high-income earners like Gaetano Cipriano, who choose to live modestly and invest their income productively. It is demanding only on those who can afford luxuries and make the choice to spend on them. In general, the more you earn, the easier it should be to give, not only in terms of dollars, but also as a percentage of your income. In the appendix, which you can find in the accompanying PDF or on the website of The Life You Can Save, I therefore suggest levels of giving for the upper half of US income taxpayers. In other words, for everyone with adjusted gross annual incomes of more than $40,000. The term adjusted gross annual income is used in the US tax system to refer to gross income less specified deductions, including business expenses, retirement accounts, health savings accounts, and college tuition fees. My suggestions for the proportion of income to be given range from 1% for those with adjusted gross incomes between $40,000 and $81,000 to 50% for the top 0.001% of US taxpayers who have incomes of more than $53 million a year. I don't think that these levels of giving would impose significant hardship on anyone, although at the lower income levels this will, of course, depend on individual circumstances. You can find out how my suggestions apply to you by going to the website of The Life You Can Save, clicking on the Get Involved tab, and then on Take the Pledge. There you can insert your income in your own currency, and the website will tell you how much to give at the level I'm suggesting. Over the years since I first proposed a giving scheme along the lines of the one in the appendix, some people have told me that they think it is unrealistic to expect wealthy people to give as much as I'm suggesting. Former President Bill Clinton was one of them in his book Giving. But what is considered an unrealistic level of giving in one time and place may seem quite modest in another. Surprisingly, according to a 2000 survey, Americans earning less than $20,000 a year actually give a higher percentage of their income, a substantial 4.6%, to charity than every other income group until we get to those earning more than $300,000 a year. The amounts we give are greatly affected by the practices of the family in which we grow up, and that is in turn affected by the culture around us. 
As we saw in chapter 5, much will depend on the way in which we appeal to people and on the institutional structures and social practices under which we live. Until we have tried to change these structures and practices, as that chapter described, we cannot really know how much people may eventually be willing to give. The suggestions I've made do not require wealthy people to come remotely near to impoverishing themselves. They will still be able to live at a very comfortable level, dine at good restaurants, go to concerts, take luxurious vacations, and change their wardrobes each season. I very much doubt that any of them will be noticeably less happy, and I'm sure that many of them will be much happier because they will have found a worthy and fulfilling purpose for their wealth. Even if your income doesn't put you in the top half of your country's taxpayers, you may still have income that you can spare. Remember that bottle of water or can of soda you bought instead of drinking the water that runs out of the tap? Start off by giving something, no matter how little, and then next month, see if you can give a little more. Getting to 1% of your income may not be difficult and will enable you to feel that you've done your share. Obviously, as I wrote in response to Douglas, the Glenview High student quoted in Chapter 3, I don't have any authority over you, and it is up to you to consider these suggestions, along with the reasoning behind them, and decide for yourselves how much to give. One bonus of these recommendations is that they make it possible to find out how much the affluent people of the world could give if they were all to give at a level that, taking into account their income, could not be regarded as unreasonably burdensome. Because we know how many US taxpayers there are in each income bracket, it is possible to calculate how much would be raised for the world's poorest people if everyone in the upper half of US taxpayers were to give at the recommended level. The answer is $604 billion a year. Obviously, the rich in countries other than the United States should share the burden of relieving global poverty. In Chapter 9, I estimated that there are a billion affluent people in the world, that is, people above the average income in Portugal. These people should also be doing their share of combating global poverty, whether in their own countries or elsewhere. For simplicity, let's take one-third as a fair share for the United States since that is proportionate to the U.S. share of the total income of the OECD countries. That was 34% in 2017. On that basis, and assuming a similar distribution of income in the other OECD countries to that in the U.S., extending the scheme I've suggested worldwide would provide more than $1.8 trillion annually for development aid. That isn't quite right, though, because income in many OECD countries is more equally distributed than in the US. Therefore, fewer people will be earning at the highest levels and contributing at the higher rates that I'm suggesting for those income levels. So let's trim $500 billion from the figure just mentioned, bringing it down to $1.3 trillion. That's still 20 times the $65 billion estimate for lifting everyone out of extreme poverty from The Economist's editorial discussed in Chapter 9. I indicated there that this estimate is likely to be too low and suggested that we double it. If you like, you can choose a higher multiple. Even so, 20 times that figure should be ample. If handing out cash turns out not to be the best way to end extreme poverty, then $1.3 trillion would cover not only the aid itself, but also research and experimentation into what forms of aid 
work best. It is therefore very probable that if the one billion affluent people in the world were to give at the levels I am proposing, levels that I believe are not burdensome, we could achieve the first and most important target of Sustainable Development Goal 1, which, as we saw in the previous chapter, is to eliminate large-scale extreme poverty. Most likely, we would have enough left over to make progress toward the other Sustainable Development Goals as well. Here's another point that emerges from these calculations. Of the $604 billion that the top half of American taxpayers could donate without hardship, only $48 billion comes from taxpayers with annual incomes of less than $140,000 and who are therefore not in the top 10% of US income earners. So if you think that it is too demanding to expect anyone earning less than $140,000 a year to donate even 1% of their income, which, I hasten to add, is not my view, the total raised from the top 10% of US taxpayers alone would still be $556 billion. That, together with the rest of the world's 1 billion affluent people, would still yield more than $1 trillion, which is 15 times the economist's estimate of what is required to close the poverty gap. The Greatest Motivation If you and other well-off people in affluent countries were all to give, say, 5% of your income for the fight against global poverty, it is unlikely that you would be any less happy than you are now. You may have to make some adjustments to your spending, but those adjustments will probably make little or no difference to your well-being. Your new ethic gives you a new outlook on consumption. You no longer have to spend money to keep up appearances, because otherwise people will think you can't afford to buy new clothes or a new car, or to renovate your home. Now you can tell others that you have a better use for the money. In fact, you can just stop worrying about what they think of you because now your self-esteem is securely grounded on what you're doing for others and not on the shifting sands of what others think of you. You're most likely to end up happier than before because taking part in a collective effort to help the world's poorest people gives your life greater meaning and fulfilment. I have many emails from people who have told me that giving has filled their lives with a new purpose and meaning. It can do the same for you. Take Washington physician John Moran, for example, who became curious about Fistula Foundation after hearing about effective altruism from his son. Moran's research led him to the Life You Can Save website, where he learned of obstetric fistula and liked the concrete results that a donation could produce. He decided to set up a monthly recurring donation to help pay for fistula procedures. It really gives me a good feeling every month, he wrote. If I hadn't accomplished anything else that month, at least I helped pay for one procedure. For millennia, wise people have said that doing good brings fulfilment. Buddha advised his followers, Set your heart on doing good. Do it over and over again, and you will be filled with joy. Socrates and Plato taught that the just man is happy. Today we associate an epicure with one who takes pleasure in fine food and wines. But Epicurus, the philosopher who gave his name to that way of living, wrote, It is impossible to live the pleasant life without also living sensibly, nobly, and justly. The wisdom of the ancients still holds. A survey of 30,000 American households 
found that those who gave to charity were 43% more likely to say that they were very happy about their lives than those who did not give. And the figure was very similar for those who did voluntary work for charities, as compared with those who did not. A separate study showed that those who give are 68% less likely to have felt hopeless and 34% less likely to say that they felt so sad that nothing could cheer them up. The American Red Cross, an organization that has an immense amount of experience with volunteers, both workers and blood donors, takes a similar view. It encourages people to volunteer by telling them, helping others feels good and helps you feel good about yourself. Jane Pilliavin, a psychologist, put this to the test and found that giving blood does, like volunteering in general, make people feel good about themselves. The effect is particularly marked in older people. So marked, in fact, that there is even evidence that volunteering improves the health of older people and helps them live longer. Receiving assistance, on the other hand, doesn't have as great a beneficial impact. As psychologist Jonathan Haidt, author of The Happiness Hypothesis, comments, at least for older people, it really is more blessed to give than to receive. The link between giving and happiness is clear, but surveys cannot show the direction of causation. Researchers have, however, looked at what happens in people's brains when they do good things. In one experiment, economists William Harbour and Daniel Burghardt and psychologist Ulrich Meyer gave $100 to each of 19 female students. While undergoing magnetic resonance imaging, which shows activity in various parts of the brain, the students were given the option of donating some of the money to a local food bank for the poor. To ensure that any effects observed came entirely from making the donation, and not, for instance, from concern about what others would think of them, the students were informed that no one, not even the experimenters, would know which students made a donation. The research found that when students donated, the brain's reward centres, the chordate nucleus, nucleus accumbens and insulae, become active. These parts of the brain respond when you eat something sweet or receive money. Altruists often talk of the warm glow they get from helping others. Now we have seen it happening in the brain. Most of us prefer harmony to discord, whether between ourselves and others or within our own minds. That inner harmony is threatened by any glaring discrepancy between the way you live and the way you think you ought to live. Your reasoning may tell you that you ought to be doing something substantial to help the world's poorest people, but your emotions may not move you to act in accordance with this view. If you are persuaded by the moral argument, but are not sufficiently motivated to act accordingly, try this. Instead of worrying about how much you would have to do in order to live a fully ethical life, do something that is significantly more than you have been doing so far. See how that feels. If it feels good, keep doing it, or challenge yourself to do a little more. Try to set a new personal best in giving. You may find it more rewarding than you imagined possible. I was lucky enough to know Henry Spira, a man who spent his life campaigning for the downtrodden, the poor and the oppressed. Since he never had much money, his form of philanthropy was to give his time, energy and intelligence to making a difference. In the 1950s, he marched in the civil rights movement in the South. Sailing around the world as a merchant seaman, he worked for a rebel union organisation fighting corrupt union bosses. 
The 1960s saw him teaching in some of New York City's toughest public high schools. In the 1970s, he became an extraordinarily effective advocate for animals. Among his many achievements was persuading cosmetics companies to find alternatives to testing their products on animals. When he was around 70, Spira developed cancer and knew he did not have long to live. I spent a lot of time with him then, and in one of our conversations, I asked what had driven him to spend his life working for others. He replied, I guess basically one wants to feel that one's life has amounted to more than just consuming products and generating garbage. I think that one likes to look back and say that one's done the best one can to make this a better place for others. You can look at it from this point of view. What greater motivation can there be than doing whatever one possibly can to reduce pain and suffering?